You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. In 1860, on the eve of the Republican convention in Chicago that year, a massive crowd gathered outside a small house in a New York State town. On ready were bands and marchers, even a few cannon, to announce the nomination of the man they knew would become the next nominee of the Republican Party and probably the next President of the United States, William Seward. There was reason for such thinking. The governor and senator of New York, the largest electoral prize in the 1860s, connected with the most powerful boss of the Whig and now Republican parties in America, Thurlow Weed. Like many Whig senators, Seward became a Republican after the successes that the party had in its first election of 1854, earning enough seats in the House to protest the Democratic majority. Of the few Republicans, Seward was the best known, the best known anti-slavery senator. His opponents were smaller in stature. Samuel Chase of Ohio didn't register outside his home state. Edward Bates and Abraham Lincoln were Western men, Simon Cameron in Pennsylvania was a native son, looking to trade in his candidacy for, for power. No one united the party like Seward did. When the first ballot was finished and Seward led, the crowd cheered outside his home, waiting for the moment when he would tip over and get enough votes to win. They would cheer as he led, indeed, a second ballot. But something was going wrong. The Seward forces couldn't quite lock the nomination up. They could not quite get to two-thirds that they needed to get the nomination. Over time, they were losing support. And the one-term congressman and railroad lawyer from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, amazingly, was becoming everyone's second choice and beating out Bates to become the Western candidate. Lincoln was not unknown. He was famous for debating the Democratic little giant, Stephen Douglas, the man who all knew they would be competing for the Democratic nomination in the 1860 election. And Abraham Lincoln had made an appearance at the Cooper Union in New York. So many New Yorkers were aware of him too, as they were aware of, as they were aware of Seward. It must have been a sad day when on the third ballot Seward was beaten and Lincoln won the nomination. Seward had still been the first choice of a majority of delegates, but Lincoln would benefit from the age-old two-thirds rule at conventions, a rule which probably has had more impact on who has gotten to be president in America than any other. 
the use of strategic voting. I want to vote for Seward, many thought, but can he beat Stephen Douglas or the Constitutional Union Party led by John Bell? The competition for the 1860 nomination would be out west, and delegates, even in Pennsylvania and Ohio, wanted a westerner. Then there was horse trading. Lincoln's men did what they had to do despite Lincoln's own protest to give him the nomination. Lincoln told them not make any deals. Lincoln's manager, David Davis, refused to listen. President Obama is the second man from Illinois to be chosen president. Like the previous Illinois resident, Abraham Lincoln, he was not born in the state. Adelaide Stevenson failed in his attempt to gain the presidency in 1952 and the 1956. There was some talk of a 1960 campaign for Stevenson. If, like in so many other Democratic conventions past, the nomination was not decided by the first couple of ballots. But the young John Kennedy wrapped up the nomination early on. Like Lincoln, Obama defeated a New Yorker. Well, sort of a New Yorker. Lincoln beat William Seward in the nomination process. Miffed by the loss, Seward didn't show it in public. And Lincoln asked him for his help in the campaign, and Seward indeed helped in the general election of 1860. As a reward, and also with the realization that Seward would make a strong member of his cabinet, Lincoln made Seward his Secretary of State. Like Lincoln, President Obama has offered his defeated New York opponent the same office. With a large, meaningful election, such as that as we had last year, the election of the nation's first African-American president is not the only significant event of the 2008 election. The large Democratic vote and the repudiation of the Republican Party make it historic as well. Such a big election where, for many years past, we've had small, close elections naturally overshadows some of the smaller trends that were noticeable from this past election. We talked about squeaker reelects, where it looks like when a president has a tough reelect. His party had better watch out in four years. So after waiting several months since the election, I thought I'd look at some of the few random items, the smaller items from 2008, some very impactful and some just trivia, and put them in some historical context. These micro-events might otherwise get forgotten in such a historic election. The 44th president does not break one interesting, if not important, trend that all 43 men who have held the presidency have shared. President Obama is not an only child. For some reason, no U.S. president has been an only child. Now, I won't speculate on the possible psychology of only children, uh, versus children who have siblings. I'm not qualified to do it, and I don't think that's the direction to go in. Simple statistics. If one were really to research them, might explain the whole thing. We're only dealing with 43 individuals. That's not a huge sample size. One might need brothers or sisters to help with fundraising, or, as John F. Kennedy did, to have help in government. Uh, there could be the simple fact that P. 
people tended to have more children in the past than now, making the statistics easier for the men of the past presidencies. But that's a trend that Obama does not break. He is the first president to have been born in one of the new states added in 1959, Hawaii and Alaska. He was born in Hawaii in 1961, barely making the constitutional requirement that a president be born in the United States. The men at the Constitutional Convention had no issue with immigrants. A bunch of the signers were born in Scotland, Ireland, England. In fact, the whole country, after all, was, a, was part of England. But for the executive, they were seeking to avoid a tyrant from a foreign shore. Those items are more trivial. Of significance to the Democratic Party was that Obama's 53% win was a solid majority, one the Democrats have not seen since 1964. Carter barely won a majority in 1976. And President Clinton's two wins, while decisive, were not majority wins. He won with a minority of the popular vote both times, due to the presence of Ross Perot on the ticket. After holding the House for 40 years, the party was ousted in 1994 and then lost its bid to take the House right back in 1996, although Clinton was re-elected in that year. The next few years saw anemic take-back-the-House efforts on the part of the Democratic Party. While Republicans built constituencies, firmed up their base, and destroyed the infrastructure on K Street, the Hill lobbyists who Democrats had relied on for wins, it took 12 years for Democrats to take the House back. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. But once done in 2006, Democrats can now show two years of gains in House elections. That's extremely rare. The win in 2006, and now in 2008, also assures that the Republican reign over the House would not be as long as the Democrats had had 40 years. That will probably go down in history as one of the longest reigns or control of Congress ever. The state of Arizona was knocked off the radar this election because it happened to be the home state of John McCain. Otherwise, the trending there was Democratic. As it was, Obama got 44% of the vote and won the growing Hispanic vote, despite this being the home state of his opponent. Arizona will certainly be a state that both parties will target in 2012. And assuming Republicans don't nominate McCain or another Arizonan again, Democrats might have a slight edge here. California reached its fifth year as an unquestionable blue state, a trend that started in 1992. The presence of a moderate Republican governor is no doubt keeping Republican spirits high here, but on a national level, California votes blue. The Democrats start presidential elections, it seems, with a 54-vote margin. But then again, Texas also has endured the same stretch. 
not counting 1988, when the presence of Lloyd Benson on the ticket made this state at least theoretically in play for Democrats. It hasn't been competitive. Carter won this state in 1976, and that was the last time the state was competitive at all for Democrats. With these three states, Texas, South Carolina, and Mississippi, start with about the same advantage as Democrats. The show-me state, Missouri, did not play its traditional role as bellwether this year. In 1956, Missourians voted for Adelaide Stevenson, while the nation voted for Dwight Eisenhower. Now, they voted for John McCain by the barest of fractions, just 0.2% of the vote, two-tenths of a percent. Missouri's result shouldn't tell all that much. It was close, after all. But it did help to answer this question, if the show-me state is a true bellwether, or if it's more a state where every four years there's a turnout battle between the cities of New uh, cities of St. Louis and Kansas City and the rural areas. A better bellwether state in most elections might be Ohio, which once again went with the winner in this election. John McCain returns to the government, now run by his opponent. The same was true of the major opponent of the last president from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, and that was Senator Stephen Douglas. He went back to his Senate seat after his run for the presidency, and continued, before his opponent even took office, to try to forge a compromise between South and North. Recently, Senator John Kerry, Senator Bob Dole, Senator George McGovern were presidential candidates who returned to the Senate after their elections. None has had an overwhelmingly great career since. Kerry is a prominent critic of the Democrats, but he's certainly no leader of the party, and he failed as an in his attempt to regain the nomination and was scolded by party leaders after making a comment about Iraqi veterans that was probably misinterpreted. McGovern served in the Senate for eight years and then was defeated in 1980, and Bob Dole retired, more popular as a former politician than he was as an elected one. John McCain has been critical of some of Obama's policies, but it's not likely he'll ever match the anger of Henry Clay who returned to the Senate after his defeat in 1832 and gave Andrew Jackson, the president who defeated him, an extremely hard second term, opposing his Bank of the United States plan and leading the Senate to censure the president eventually. We cannot forget that we had a veepless election in 2008, and that was the first since 1928, if one counts Albin Barclay's few days of running in the 1952 convention as a run for the presidency. I have some doubts about that. But still, it's the first veepless election in a long time. The vice presidency has been elevated somewhat after the Cold War years. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. 
What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. And the vice president is automatically considered a contender, so long as they want to be. This was a rare case where the vice president, Dick Cheney, chose not to be. It is very likely that we will have a V-plus election in 2016. That's pretty far out from now. But given his age, Biden would be an unlikely candidate. Uh, Two other trends are worth discussing. Obama joined several recent Democratic presidents, Carter, Clinton, and Kennedy, who sought to change the party while running and act as a different type of Democrat. I'm not counting Lyndon Johnson here. He's a strong party man especially because he came to the nomination not by election, but by succession. The other Democrats, Kennedy, Carter, and Clinton, were not party men. They were modernizing, moderating, men who wished to change the party a bit to better run against Republicans. Obama had no such baggage. He ran a traditional liberal Democratic campaign, kind that had not been run since 1988, perhaps 1984, and the kind that had not been successful since 1964. While Democrats were able to turn certain parts of the South blue in this election, the border states, one might say the Appalachian states, are a particularly weak part of the country for Democrats right now. And while the rest of the country leaned Democrat, these areas actually got more Republican. West Virginia had been a reliable Democratic state for a while until 2000 when George Bush won. He won again in 2004, and the state was not even actively contested in 2008. Kentucky and Tennessee were also examples of states that Clinton and Gore won in 1992 and 1996, but were not available for Barack Obama. No doubt these states will be the core breadbasket of electoral votes for any potential Republican presidential strategy. In other elections, it's been a little-known fact that two states in the Union allow their voters to split the electoral votes between the congressional districts. These states are Maine and Nebraska. In these states, the candidate that wins the vote in a particular congressional district gets one electoral vote. And so it's possible that votes can be split between two candidates. Now, because Maine has been traditionally a Democratic state in most recent elections, Nebraska traditionally a Republican state in most recent elections, we've never seen a scenario play out. But 2008 made history in a small way because it was such a historic election and the result of it was historic. It was a little bit under the radar that Barack Obama won one electoral vote in Nebraska. He won the second district, which is where Omaha is, 
I won it by only 1% of the vote, about 3,000 votes. There was an increase of 33,000 votes in the Douglas County area where uh, Omaha is. Omaha had not voted Democratic since 1968, so it reflects a significant change in the state. A reflect, it reflects uh, disapproval with the performance of the Republican incumbent administration in the state. And to some degree, it reflects the fact that Obama's campaign showed up hard in the 2nd Congressional District. The Republicans sort of took the state of Nebraska for granted. Some have speculated it doesn't hurt that uh, Warren Buffett, famous uh, Omaha resident, endorsed Barack Obama. We'll see next year when the Republican Party will likely contest this district fervently uh, whether or not Democrats would be able to win it again. So that is the kind of jetsam and flotsam of the 2008 election, the microtrends that got lost in the big events of, of the past election. Hope you've enjoyed it. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can join our uh, Facebook group, and the archive is available there. Uh, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.